0: Hey, everybody, we've got two brand new podcast supporters that I want to thank, Christian Shea and Bill Hodge. Thanks so much to these two guys for signing up on Patreon to support the podcast. If you're interested in learning more about that, you can go to com slash support to check out all the options. But again, no pressure on that. I just really appreciate everybody's attention and your willingness to invest an hour, hour and a half in each one of these episodes. It really blows my mind and means a ton to me. So thank you so much. Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is David Gessner. If you're a regular Mountain and Prairie listener, then you're surely familiar with David and his work. He's written several of my all-time favorite books, most notably All the Wild That Remains, Edward Abbey, Wallace Stegner, and The American West. He was also a past guest on this podcast almost exactly a year ago, a conversation that continues to receive excellent feedback and ranks as one of my most downloaded episodes. Between his writing, teaching, chairing the creative writing department at University of North Carolina in Wilmington, and his role as a committed family man, David is a busy guy, so I greatly appreciate his sitting down to record a second episode. We caught up during his annual trip to Colorado and covered a wide range of fascinating topics, all presented with his signature style of deeply considered insightfulness, balanced with a hilarious sense of humor. We chatted about his ongoing work on his new book about public lands and Theodore Roosevelt, as well as a recent research trip in which he flew in a Cessna from Colorado to northwest Montana and many places in between. We discussed his thoughts on Theodore Roosevelt, and how his opinions of the man have evolved throughout this book project. David shares more insights into his writing process and how endurance and team sports have helped build his discipline and work ethic as an author. We spend a good amount of time discussing his book, Ultimate Glory, digging into the mindset that allowed David to pursue the sport of Ultimate Frisbee, as well as writing with laser-focused obsession. We finish up by chatting about some of the best books he's read in the past year, as well as one relatively unknown author that everyone who loves the West should read. This episode will obviously be of great interest to people who love the West, but I highly recommend it to anyone who's focused on a creative pursuit, writing, painting, poetry, sculpture, you name it. Thanks to his decades of daily grinding and obsession, David is a shining example of the discipline and commitment required to be a professional artist, and he's damn good at explaining it in a way that really makes sense. If you haven't already, check out my first conversation with David as well. There's a link in the episode notes. But right now, enjoy this enlightening and hilarious conversation with David Gessner. After our first podcast interview, I got some feedback that I was laughing too much.
1: Okay. And so I'm going to ask try you try to be more serious <laughs> and, and possibly grim this time. Yes,
0: I'll, and I'm going to do my best not to laugh yeah. and offend people. Um but we're here in Boulder, and since we last spoke, I read Ultimate Glory, which gave me a lot more insight into into you and your background, and I was thinking maybe we could start out just by talking about Boulder and what it meant to you when you moved to this area during such a formative period in your life and why you keep coming
1: back. Well, you know, Boulder gets a lot of crap, and rightly so. In fact, the whole time I was here, or almost the whole time I was here, I— had a cartoon strip called The Ballad of Boulder, where I'd make fun of, um, you know, the Lycra crowd. And uh, I, and even like, I probably shouldn't say this, but even the quote-unquote homeless people who had really good abs and biceps. And I was just like, this is a weird place where it's like required by law to be fit, you know. And so um, it's I have no problem attacking Boulder for lack of diversity, you know, Google's coming in and the 3 million dollar houses are going to be 6 million dollar houses and so there I get what's wrong with Boulder. But for me, I guess the way to start is I was coming from Worcester, Mass where I had just had testicular cancer and was breaking up with my girlfriend of 8 years and at one point in a, the book I was working on, a novel called Wormtown, which is a nickname for Worcester, um, I asked, you know, what's worse, cancer or Worcester? Because, I mean, I, I, it, was a, it was a bad place and yeah. for me. It's where I grew up. It's my hometown. And while I, in the month after cancer, when I was getting radiation in Worcester, I one by one got rejection letters from the uh, MFA programs I'd applied to. And I was down to the last one, and I got into Boulder, and it was—I call it the Deus ex machina. You know, I was lift, airlifted basically out of Worcester to Boulder, but I wasn't airlifted. I drove a—I drove a unregistered um, uh, Buick Electra across the country. My dad decided it wouldn't make sense to. Register at Massachusetts when I'd still soon be in another state. Yeah, yeah. pun intended. And so I drove across, and I remember, you know, as I said um, in in the last book too, it was like, you know, if John Denver had come on the radio as I saw the mountains, it couldn't have been affected me more. I was practically crying, and I was like, I've left this part behind me. To make it even more symbolic, uh, the operation occurred on my thirtieth birthday. So I moved out here to El Dorado Springs, little town to the south of Boulder. Just you know, if you've been there, it's just striking. You know, in our house was this little blue gingerbread cottage, uh, huge rock walls above it, and the a spur of the Mesa Trail about twenty yards from my house. And uh, the process of getting in shape again after being sick, that um, I ran into this guy. Oak Thorn. He probably changed his name, but that he was a naturalist. I'm sure he's dead by now. If Oak, if you're not dead, I'm sorry. Um, and he taught me, you know, this is Yucca, this is Sage, this is, you know, he taught me, I just went for a walk with him and he taught me the names of everything in the West. So I was in this new place and a novel kind of started pouring out of me. My, you know, I'd never, I'd always written in fits and starts before then. So Boulder came to symbolize kind of this resurgence, health. Um, Soon I got into biking, and even though I'm fully aware of the limits of Boulder, um, it still plays that role kind of in my subconscious where I come back here, you know, I dream of retiring here. don't know how I'm going to afford that, but (laughs) if, um, if any wealthy readers out there would like to contribute to the Get David Gessner Back to Boulder Fund, they can. But... So, it's remained that, and and it's a striking place. And so it we is. come out. We have really lucked into this wonderful house sitting situation. Every June we come back, and the fun thing is to watch my daughter Hadley, who's sixteen. Uh, she brought a friend with her this year. Show off her, you know, her other home. Mm-hmm. While, while, you know, to have a different place than our our home in North Carolina. So it still has that pull for me. It means health. It means, you know, a new start. Um, obviously, the geography is so different than what I was writing about on Cape Cod. And, so, um, and it's where I kind of formed the idea of being a polygamist of place rather than a marrier of place, because the Cape and North Carolina now and Boulder are all places that, I, you know, that I've grown to really love, basically. And so, one of the things
0: it seems like it's a tradition of yours when you get here is you you crank up Flagstaff on a bike, yeah. And I think you know, in in reading your your past work and about your time here, that trip up Flagstaff kind of became a, a turning point,
1: maybe. Um, yeah. And, and yeah.
0: Can you talk a little bit about how those kind of feats of endurance maybe fueled your discipline in writing at the same time?
1: Well, I don't think it's very hard to see climbing straight up a hill on a bike as a metaphor for writing. In fact, it's almost like it's not even a metaphor. It's the same thing. Yeah. You keep your butt in the chair. You know, you do it. And you. It's. If you look up and think about it, it's an impossible goal. So you just focus on getting up the hill. And I, I really liked that. Um, my writing became, it had always been pretty disciplined, but it became much more. And... Let's say in some fantasy world, I didn't have to make money. Um, I think I could make it through the day pretty well with a big writing session in the morning and then heading out, which I'm going to do right after this, and climbing the hills around here. And one of the things it does is, it, it, you know, it's like taking a couple Xanax or something. <laughs> you know, it, it, it suppresses worry. Sure, It doesn't suppress thought. Because I like the way thought comes out of that more animal mind, mm-hmm. um, and that's the thought I like and, and want to get to, and it helps with that. But it suppresses the kind of hamster wheel worry stuff, and uh, and to me, it's really a perfect metaphor for for writing hard and writing big. And and the sense I remember my uh, my mentor out here, Reg Sauner, basically talked about the pleasures of the difficult. I don't know if I said this last year, but I wrote in my book about Boulder, Under the Devil's Thumb, I like my challenges steep. Mm-hmm. And because when it's a bigger challenge, it engages the imagination more than a small challenge does. You know, it's kind of counterintuitive in a way. You think, sure. oh, I want to do the easy thing. Well, sometimes the hard thing is the exciting one. Sure. Yeah. When that brings to mind, you mentioned briefly
0: uh, in our last conversation Donald Hall's work and how that had been <coughs> an important part of you. And then I got that book. And then in Ultimate Glory you quoted it as well, but the part about having a goal
1: and the, the trick is the goal has to be so big you'll never achieve it. Right. Um and you know, you throw yourself into it, it's unattainable. Look, we know anybody with any perspective on this world knows billions of years, you know, knows what a split tiny second our existence is. And even Shakespeare, you know, he's only made it like 500 years or so. I mean, he's gonna, you know, He might not be around in another 500. Um, there's no real, you know, you can say I want to be an immortal writer and you can't but laugh at something like that. But why not shoot for that? Um, even though it doesn't, you know, it, you're never going to succeed at what you're trying to do, but it makes things more interesting while you're here. <laughs> in- so I feel like I've just gotten my head around that concept,
0: this concept of the, having the ridiculous goals in the last few years, thanks to reading people like you and, and talking to people in this podcast, just people that are doing cool, interesting stuff. That's kind of, more times than not, that's the perspective I have. When did you, when did you get that idea? I mean, when did, when did that solidify? Have you always been like that? Like as a kid, were you always pursuing crazy goals? Because, I mean, in Ultimate Glory, you know, in your early 20s, you were pursuing yeah. this big goal you know when the payoff for the ultimate yeah. success was nothing.
1: <laughs> and yeah. so wh- where did that come from? Well, I think a simple answer is ambition. Mm-hmm. Um now my ambition happened to be toward weird things like <laughs> political cartooning and ultimate frisbee and to some degree writing and nature. But it's ambition and one of my favorite writers who really influenced me when I was young was Walter Jackson Bate, who was my professor at Harvard. And he was a biographer of John Keats and Samuel Johnson. And he really wrote these biographies where you see them becoming great writers, or you see Keats in particular becoming a great writer. And it's a very athletic kind of description. Like he calls Keats's first poem, Endymion, this big, long, bad poem, a gymnastic feat. So he... he did I talk about this last time? I don't want to repeat myself. I don't know. I don't yeah. think so. Right. So he talks about how Keats, as a you know, Keats has this incredibly small window. He starts writing when he's twenty-one and is dead by twenty-seven or twenty-six, um, maybe twenty-eight. Um, but anyway, uh, he writes. He, some instinct in him knows that momentum is the key thing, um, and he writes "Endymion," this big bad poem. And he kind of does it like a hack writer. He pushes through it. Uh-huh. But the benefits come later. Um, there's a great William James quote, which Bate quotes, which is you learn to skate in the summer. There's a lag time when you do these things. Yep. And a lot of writers are kind of tepid and afraid or on the page and don't plunge in. Keats was a plunger inner. He was also a genius, that helped yeah. me too. But <laughs> but you know, I so I was reading those books and one of the lines Bate liked to say is the hunger of youth is for greatness. And I think when you're young, and if you're young and ambitious, you kind of create these giant goals and they're helpful in the sense that they motivate you into action, even mm-hmm. if they're somewhat delusional. Sure. I mean, I was thinking just the other day, walking up here in the mountains, that money has never been that. Attractive to me I mean I'd like to have money So I'd like to live here You know yeah. I want my daughter To be able to go to college And But it's But glory Used to be pretty attractive <laughs> And And I know it's silly You know well, It is what it, it is You know? it, But you I mean, know I also know I. So I I mean I would say I even had a A little bit of megalomania In there when I was younger And And it's kind of fun To To kind of as you get older, be able to examine yourself at arm's length and and distance yourself from that a little bit. Well,
0: I just absolutely loved Ultimate Glory. And for people, um, if you read it and you you look at anything, well, I don't know anything about Ultimate Frisbee. It's only partly about Ultimate Frisbee. I think it's a metaphor for anybody who's got ambition to do things outside the norm. I just loved it. We can can dive in. We could spend three hours on that. But one thing I want to talk about first is your – current trip here? Because when we met last time, you were on kind of in the middle of researching your new book or book that will be coming out in a, a year or so about Theodore Roosevelt, Public Lands, Bears Ears, and you're, you're continuing to do research on that. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about
1: sure. your current trip sure. and what you've been up to. Well, last summer, you know, I've kind of evolved into this way of doing these books where one summer, and it's summer because I'm an academic and have that time off. Is kind of plunging into the trip. Um, I always say it's like a reality show. Onto, I'm a reality show onto myself, where I'm going and meeting people. You know, spending time rafting and hiking and meeting environmentalists and meeting local people, and scribbling down notes all the time in my journal and recording it. You know, I used to do it on a micro cassette. Now we do it on the phone. Um, and and kind of as it's happening, thinking about the narrative. So last summer was this big road trip where I took my nephew, uh, who just graduated graduated from UNC Asheville, and we went up the East Coast, out to the Badlands, all over the place yeah. out here, and and recorded it as it went. And then I got home, and you know, meanwhile I'm reading everything about you know reading forty books about Teddy Roosevelt, and I got home and just started cranking it out and. For most people, and for us too, because we lost we we lost some of our house. The hurricane was a Flo- hurricane. Florence was a bad thing, but it gave me almost a month off of school, mm-hmm. and I just wrote and wrote and wrote. So I sent it to my editor, and he's great. His name is John Cox, and he's with Simon and Schuster. And he pointed out rightly that um, whereas I had wanted to do a survey of public lands. And of the past, present, and future of American wilderness, I'd really kind of gone down a rabbit hole uh, as far as Bears Ears went. Because mm-hmm. Bears Ears is so fascinating to me. It's like this confluence of Native American ideals and, and the National Park or National Monument ideals. And there were so many interesting people. Regina Lopez, White Skunk, was this great speaker, um, a Native person who was part of the original commission that it kind of took over the book. And that was helpful. So I had to read, you know, a lot of times, you know, most books are like, you know, third born or or third one, you know, you you take a shot at it, Mm -hmm. you come back. But so so I kind of wanted to have a last section that was beyond Bear's Ears. And that led to me flying around with EcoFlight, a great organization that... Does all this amazing environmental work on a Cessna six seat plane with the pilot Bruce Gordon mm-hmm. uh, over the last month, and we flew up, up to northern Montana where we met Rick Bass and many others involved in the fight for the twenty five remaining grizzlies. We flew over Pinedale, you know, yeah. Wyoming, and, and saw all the gas and oil, unbelievable, and and you know it's a very wet year, unlike the other. Couple of years, we've talked. A very wet sure. year in the West, so there was flooding on the rivers that was coming up onto the gas pads. Oh wow! Um, anyway, it was really literally seeing the big picture of the West. Sure. We did a huge lap, leaving from Aspen. Mm-hmm. We went up through Montana. Uh, we went up through Wyoming. We went right by the Tetons. We mm-hmm. were a thousand feet below them. That's um, so cool. You know, a little scary, but <laughs> cool. And and uh, and then we went. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to get it wrong. They're going to be upset. But American Prairie Reserve. Reserves, yes. We met with them. Oh, cool. In uh, north central Montana. So it was a great... So it's going to open up the book post Bears Ears. Definitely. So, um, And I've yet to write that section. But uh, it's really, it's really been fascinating. And, of course, it's a little risky writing about Teddy Roosevelt right Mm -hmm. now with, um, for lack of a better term, the intense political correctness of, you know, Roosevelt's flaws are pretty apparent. Sure. He's of his time. And and my argument is I don't want to throw out Teddy with the bathwater, basically. I want to to acknowledge where he was flawed. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's fanatic, manifest destiny, you know, (laughs) anything in his way, including Native peoples and land, you know. He, but but he also I really believe had a radical viewpoint from his time, a biocentric viewpoint where mm-hmm. he really did uh, understand that there was was life beyond human beings. Yes, and, and and even though the you know at Yellowstone it says for the enjoyment of the people, mm-hmm. he all, he cared just as much about the wildlife in there, and I mean and the buffalo and the big big uh, definitely. So it, it's really interesting to use, you know, you, you know how I write. I'm not going to, it's not a straight biography. Yeah. It's me traveling and considering, and this actually goes back to Walter Jackson Bate, the great biographer, uh, considering h- how to put to use the biography in the present. Mm-hmm. What does Roosevelt offer us right now? You could say he doesn't. You know, since he's kind of at times a strident voice, sure. do we need another strident voice in the age of Trump? Yeah. Maybe not. But I think his, you know, I like to think of him. There's a famous moment in the Badlands where he beats up a bully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like to picture him beating Trump up. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, so like how do we use that now? And, and part of it is some of it we can't use. I'd sure. rather listen to Regina, you know, an indigenous person, talk about Bears Ears than, uh, you know, a, a, a politician. Yes. So, um, but one way that I think we can use them, and we talked about this a little earlier, was, is I've been reluctant to become an activist. Mm-hmm. I've always been in... Why is that? Why do you think? I, just temperamental. Mm-hmm. You know, I just... But in your Frisbee
0: days, you were not scared to get in people's face, steal microphones.
1: No, I wasn't afraid to do that. But I grew up, I always think like, you know, Mad Magazine, you know, as a cartoonist, there's everything I could see the other side of. And even my own brain contradicts itself all the time. I know the feeling. And so to say this is right Hmm. makes me want to mock somebody. You know, that's political cartooning, right? And so it's been hard for me to get to this is right. And one way I'm starting to do it is through my 16-year-old daughter, who doesn't see climate change as theoretical or off in the future. She sees it as stealing her future. And, yes. and, and some grad students that I had this last term, they don't treat this as you know an issue. Mm-hmm. They treat it as a life or death kind of thing. And these, after Hurricane Florence hit our, my current hometown of Wilmington, North Carolina, a bunch of them formed a 350.org, McKibben's organization. Yep. Um, they formed a, a group, and they've been fighting hard. And so that fits into the Teddy book, too. Um, you're not supposed to call him Teddy, but... Yeah, he didn't like that, right? <laughs> yeah, he didn't like it. He, but he's not here. And so that comes like... So the questions I'm asking are... Do we have a use for him now? What is that use? Um, How can I become more active and more of a fighter? You know, it's scary because you look at... um, Bill McKibben is actually a character in Ultimate Glory because he was my editor at the Harvard Crimson a million years ago. But, you know, the guy gets death threats and conservative groups pass around his address and he's got a daughter, you know, like, pass around his address like, you know, here's where he lives. Um... And I've been reluctant to get into that kind of battle because you're going to get just slammed on the internet. You no know, question. Slammed. Yeah, you know but you're going to
0: be getting you're going to get attacked. Like so, no
1: so that's maybe an answer from Roosevelt. Courage. Whatever you want to say about the guy, he was not afraid of of laying it on the line. That's you know, exactly the man in right. the arena sort of thing. And so, um, you know, I've been really reluctant to. To open myself and my family up to that, but I think it's it's time. You know? It's too urgent at this point.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think I-, I had a guy on the podcast a while back uh, named Alden Schindler, and you ought to meet. I don't know if you know him, but he's the head of sustainability at Aspen Skiing Company, and he's a really big climate change adv- uh, advocate. Or and he you know he he talked about the the fight involved in it and just the the need to build up thick skin yeah right? i mean he understands that it. it's it's kind of it's very 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 important yeah more important than anything
1: yeah
0: um so thinking about t r and what you've learned about him what what is the do you have any different perspective on him than you did when you started this project is there is there anything that Has changed in your overall idea about the man from from than you had when you started the
1: project. I'd say the things that have surprised me is what a good friend he was. Mm -hmm. You know, I I had uh, a couple people point that out to me. Um, I mean, in a way, Owen Wister and T.R. probably did more to create the cowboy myth than anybody, and uh, he stayed friends with Wister forever. He. Um, he wrote letters to his friends. I mean, I don't know where the hell he found the time to do this on top of running the world. And, you know, um, so that's, I guess that surprised me. Um, I have yet to kind of resolve what I think is one of the most interesting paradoxes, which is this is a guy um, to return to my, my uh, Colorado mentor, Reg Sauner. He said, we humans are an elsewhere. And I've, wrote in the book, or in the draft of the book, uh, you know, Roosevelt was more elsewhere than most. I mean, he's always charging off to the next thing. He's always, mm-hmm. you know, ideas are percolating in his head. And he's, you may know, he, he was a fanatic coffee drinker. Yes. And he created Maxwell House's Good to the Last Drop. He's the one who said that. I've heard that, but I've forgotten Yeah. It. yeah. And so this is a guy who really, in some ways, isn't present. Mm-hmm. And then... Up in Yellowstone, he spends hours just watching elk and studying them. And he spends, you know, to be a bird watcher, you've got to be patient. And so I love the paradox of this guy who's so achievement-oriented, obviously. And I mean, to the, um, you know, probably in a tournament of history's characters, you don't write like 40-plus books, and write them while you're—I pre- mean, we have a president who doesn't read a book, yeah. any books. None. This guy was writing books while he's president, you know, and his, and reading a book a night. Oh, sure. You know, just—so so you've got that kind of almost manic, um, achievement-oriented dynamo who also is pretty good at being quiet. For somebody who loves to talk, he was pretty good at being quiet, too, and, and observing, I saw an interview
0: with Edmund Morris uh, a while back, and they were talking. He was talking about T.R. and somebody said, "You know, was he was he manic? Like, did he have a medical problem?" And Morris said, "Well, when he was talking to somebody, if you went in his office and talked to him, he would sit very, very still and watch you and listen and listen and listen, and he'd remember everything you said. And so it was almost it is like it's just two sides of the same coin in that he was." crazy full speed but then he could completely stop yeah, and focus yeah, it's yeah. almost like a it's just this weird thing that you don't see much in humans yeah, if ever
1: yeah and i think that um in the book as you know from the edward Abbey wallace stegner book all the while that remains i don't really people call it a biography i don't really think of it i think that's one thread of it and i'm very open in that book and in this book that i'm Part of the book is me reading other biographies. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, I'm not Edmund Morris, and I and I I was very sad to see him that he died recently, and I write in the book about how much his book, you know, um, a- affected me, and I and I think one of the things about that book, it's written in this kind of bristling, energetic Rooseveltian tone mm-hmm. that is contagious. You read it and you're like, yeah, I gotta go you know shoot a buffalo and then oh, write a book my life. and yeah. you know, just it, it it's it's one of those books that's just uh you know so full of energy it's funny
0: um that edmund wrote that book and then he also <laughs> wrote a book about your your other presidential hero mr reagan
1: well <laughs> I did the voices for the audio book, and I, I did, Ronnie's. <laughs> did you really? In, yeah, in, in in the audio. So, yeah. people who want
0: to learn about uh, David's history with Mr. Reagan need to read uh, read Ultimate
1: Glory. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was actually just saying, I'm I am I can barely say the word, I am 58 now. Are you really? Yeah, and. I have been noticing that my neck has turned into kind of a turkey wall <laughs> to some degree. Stop making and, me laugh, and, please. And I, I think that you'll, in Ultimate Glory, I talk about being a young political cartoonist. And I had two strokes of good fortune. One, my first president was Nixon, only for a little while until he resigned. But, the you know, the ski jump nose and the jowls, and it was very easy— and then Ford, who was really hard for a lot of people, just kind of jumped off my pen. It was like a fetal Frankenstein. I just, I got him right one time, and then I just copied that one forever. But when I was coming into my own as a cartoonist and, and in college, um, Reagan was also. I mean, I started college in '79, and, okay, yeah. and he comes in in '80, or he's elected in '79, and he comes in in '80, and. I obsessively drew Reagan. You know, I drew the pompadour and the uh, the squinty eyes and the, the jaunty smile. But most of all, I drew his neck, the, w- the folds and the waddles. <laughs> I said it was like an Andean condor, like this. this. And and then later on, after college, and this is in Ultimate Glory 2, we put out a poster called Ronald Reagan, A Physical Examination, which was a giant drawing of him in uh, his presidential briefs, um, uh, Boxer shorts, and you know, and I drew him kind of saggy and old, and I was like, "Wow, you know," and so I didn't have empathy for that, and now I now I've come around. To, back on, you. I feel I was bad to the man. Back then. <laughs> well, yeah. um, one one question I had that I wanted to
0: go back to about you—you you said you wrote out the kind of the first draft of your new book, sent it to your editor, and then he identified where it needed some work. When you do that, is there? at this point in your career, any ego involved? Like, well, oh, this guy didn't know what the hell he's talking about. Or have you gotten to the point where you trust him enough that you're, you can take that criticism? Because I think I would be, I would,
1: my, I would get bristled. That's a great question. You know, my wife is a novelist and short story writer, Nina de Gramont, and she's written eight books. So we watch each other go through this process. And I've got to say that the cliché, that editors don't edit anymore is in my experience ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And I've worked with, you know, I've moved from house to house. I was with Norton, um, Riverhead. This one's with Simon and Schuster and all along the way, uh, I've gotten these long, intelligent, you know, five page editorial letters back from my editors. Um, and they've changed the books Mm -hmm. and, I don't really show it to too many people before I send it to the editor. I used to show it to Nina, and she showed me hers, and now we're just kind of like, ah, we'll send it to the editor instead. <laughs> and, and at first, in the early books, it was like somebody had cut my arm off or something. Oh, yeah. This is my vision, how dare you, you know? And Nina would make fun of me for it. Um, uh, <laughs> But to some degree, she's the same way. We've just learned that you get these letters, and it's something you've had held on to, and you get really upset. Mm-hmm. For and then you just wait a few days. And it goes. And away. then if you're a creative person, having that other person's input, and it, it's not incidentally another person who's important in getting the book into the world. Yes, you respond creatively to it, and. You know, for instance, in Ultimate Glory, my editor, uh, who's a woman, uh, noted that my barbaric younger self had a tendency not just toward egotistical rants, (laughs) but toward, like, jumping out of windows and fracturing my skull. and, And she wrote a list of, like, you know, things I wanted to tone down, and one of them was too many examples of rampant self-destruction, you know, two or three of those will do. You don't have to tell every time, you know, you dove after a case of beer into a mud puddle and split your arm apart, you know. So, you know, it's really good to have other eyes on it. And, and in this case, with the Teddy Roosevelt book, it was really helpful to kind of come out of the too narrow focus I was making. On bears ears. Well, that that reminds
0: me of a part in Ultimate Glory where you talk about the importance or the need for having constraints, just in general, and how like a straitjacket, yeah,
1: those <laughs> days.
0: So, I mean, can you talk about
1: constraints as a good thing for a creative person? I think one thing Ultimate Glory is about is that is beginning. You know, I'm just graduate. you know, it's me in college and me beginning. And there's nothing more exciting than limitless possibilities. And if you've got an imagination an ego, and ego and are ambitious, you can imagine yourself in so many directions. Same is true of a book, uh, particularly fiction, I think, where one of the challenges is there's so many ways to write a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, not just third person, first person, but just everything's there. Everything's possible. And that can be a little crazy making and can also undermine projects and undermine possibilities. So restraint or discipline and, you know, and commitment, you know, you can, there's got to be in a creative experience, a period of uncertainty Mm -hmm. because that's where the good stuff comes from. But then once you've locked on, to follow through with it. To go back to the example of the editor, well, at some point you got to write the book. Yeah. And if you know that the book, like you think that that's the book when you're mm-hmm. done, and then you give it to the editor and they slam back and you do that stuff. But to commit to anything, you, you, you need to not commit to other things. Yeah. Um, you, you need to say, I'm not this. And that's really hard for a, a young person to do. Sure. Um, so th- I guess that's what I meant by limit. So, nah. um But I feel like, you know, with Ultimate, which, I mean, part of the book, as you suggested, is not about playing Frisbee, which now it used to be, as you know, everybody would say, is that the thing you do with dogs? But now <laughs> even people who think they know about it will go, yeah, yeah, we have a course near our house. And I'm like it's not damn frisbee <laughs> golf. It's it's not disc golf. It's a running sport with real athletes yeah. and they play and go, you know and you it's the same thing. It's amazing how that still is true even Sure. Of course it isn't in Boulder, but yeah. it is most places. <laughs> um and there are, everybody always laughs when you say, "Oh, I I spend my time playing ultimate frisbee." But um you know, in a way it's about throwing yourself into something that others consider ridiculous or others roll their eyes at and still making it important. And the cool thing about Ultimate back then, you know, I say we were the men in the leather helmets, is not only did you create your team and you didn't have a coach Mm -hmm. and there was no TV coverage or anything. My big team was the hostages and, and we were all so tight, you know, like we lived in little warrens together around Boston. And... You created the name of the team, the mythology of the team, mm-hmm. and then if you were good enough, you know, you actually you you won some. So it was a uh, it's it was a time where in my head I was imagining myself. You know, I had a joke thing where I called myself the greatest player of all time by far, <laughs> and and that was that was I knew I wasn't. You know, yeah. but it was partly a parody of other ultimate players because there were no external coaches and media. Everybody thought they were great. Sure. And sure. so it was a bunch of delusional people like myself. So I was doing that at the same time I was imagining becoming a writer. And with writing, that imagining really got in the way of beginning mm. because I really wanted, you know, I'd read, like I said, Keats and I'd read Thoreau and and then I'd write sentences, and they did not seem like Keats or Thoreau. <laughs> so the fact that I'd imagined such a huge, ambitious kind of goal of being this great writer really impeded me from starting writing, because I couldn't really unfreeze myself. Sure. Um, and that's when I kind of got into the idea, gradually, of daily writing, of discipline, of slamming it out, of not... Slamming out the first drafts, of course, you don't want to slam out the book, of, of of just like everydayness replacing this kind of vainglorious vision and occasional writing. There was one word you mentioned in there, and I don't know how to pronounce it, arete? Arete. 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 Yeah, green. Can you talk I, a bit about that? Yeah. It was, again, going back, I should say that Walter Jackson Bate plays kind of the Merlin or um, Obi-Wan Kenobi or... What's the Harry Potter guy's name? Uh, Is it Dumbledore? Dumbledore, yeah. He kind of plays that role. He's the old professor who, and it ends up getting me very excited about writing, but um, he talked about Arete, this ideal of excellence, mm-hmm. of pursuing excellence, not for money, not for glory, but for excellence sake. And um, for me, that was something i was trying to do in the sport and eventually on the page and i just i just loved the idea and it seemed a very amateur idea too not a not to do you know it's kind of one great thing about ultimate in those days there was no worry about selling out it was the the worst excesses of commercial sport um we didn't have any of that sure we were just playing and and the tournaments would last all weekend. You'd be at some cool place like Santa Cruz, or this is how I discovered Boulder. I used oh, yeah. to come out yeah, to the yeah. July 4th tournament here. And you'd play all weekend, and then you'd mill. Um, people would hang around and talk and exchange stories and you know, often boast like African kings, you know, like boast of their feats and, <laughs> and try to get other people to boast of their feats. And, and I just went to the 50th reunion of Ultimate, out in San Diego, and we had a mill where we'd played in this beach tournament, and a mill where these 50- and 60-year-olds were all drinking beer and other things. And (laughs) this beach cop came along, and somebody yelled, beer, I yelled, cop! And everybody put their beers behind their legs (laughs) like they were 20s again. And I grabbed a water bottle, and I stood between the cop, and us and drank it, kind of a thespian performance <laughs> of virtue to show the cop we, were, we weren't drinking or anything. And then when he went by, I said to the crowd, that's the first sip of water I've had all day <laughs>
0: <laughs> for acting purposes. So one of the things in, in Ultimate Glory, you talk about um, how much you love the camaraderie with a purpose, yeah. kind of being part of this tribe. yeah, And... I would think, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of your current life now outside of, of UNCW is solitary, head yeah. on the, you know fingers on the keyboard. So how do you balance that? I mean, where do you get the, the benefits from that, being part of a team, or do you? Yeah. How do you?
1: How do you make up for not having that in your life? I think the thing to remember about that solitary aspect of writing— that I didn't know when I was young and kind of had role model heroes like Van Gogh, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. monomaniacs basically who were pursuing one thing is that it's pretty easy to be a part-time fanatic. Uh, you put in a good three hours a day as a writer mm-hmm. and you're putting out a book every year or two. Um, meanwhile, you've got 21 other hours in the day. Yep. So actually it is through the school and the grad students uh, that I get that Continued sense of community mm-hmm. that I had, and a remarkable number of my friends are still ultimate players. in fact, I'm not playing with them this year, but I'm still on a team called Old it in the way and, <laughs> and two years ago, I played with them, and they you know they've won championships i I haven't played with them in a million years, but you know we got the silver medal like a couple of years ago nice. so so part of the way I still get that team feeling as being on a team. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> so, And I, I should go back, um, just for people listening who don't know anything about Ultimate, and say, you know, Ultimate Frisbee um, was invented in the late 60s, and I went to school in 1979 and planned, you know, I played football and basketball and tennis and in high school, and I went to school thinking I'd row crew, and I was walking down to the crew practice, and I saw some people throwing a frisbee uh, with long hair, you know, on the other other side of the bridge, and I was like, ah, I'm going to go there instead. I'm not going to be a galley slave, and and it just was something that, with my sports background, you know, I could read a disc really well, mm-hmm. like where where it was going to come down, and I couldn't throw it all. I didn't know how to throw but i loved it from the beginning and one of the things i loved about it is the the physics of it a frisbee hovers it waits for you so if you're running deep you know it's just like football like yeah. somebody's covering you the disc sits there and kind of waits for you you can dive through the air and and grab it you can and and when you go up for it it's kind of sitting there on a plateau i'd love to see you know um i'd i'd love to see LeBron James go oh. up for a, go up for a frisbee, you know, and catch it at eleven feet. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the athletes who are playing now, I just did a piece for Outside magazine about a guy named Bo Kittredge. Um, his four hundred time, his vertical leap, uh, all these things are comparable to pro athletes. So yeah. you've got some real. but when I was playing, like I said it, we were the men in the leather helmets. we were just starting. The athleticism wasn't that great. But um, you could see the potential of the sport, and I still believe um, that if it weren't called a frisbee, which we associate with <laughs> hula hoops or whatever, uh-huh. um, uh, you know, if it had been called team disc disc sport or something, yeah, just yeah. something simple, and we didn't think of a frisbee as something you throw on the beach, just that from a physical point of view, it's spectacular, and it, and it could, I see no reason, you know, once we get. It might take a century to get past the stigma of sure, the Frisbee, but sure. I can see it being played, you know, as a, as a popular spectator sport.
0: Reading your book, it made me wish that I had focused in on that because I've always felt like in college, a commitment to sports is what was missing. Uh, it, yeah. The thing about constraints, I went from high school, I went to boarding school where every minute was structured, athletics, academics, then you get to college, and it's just a damn free-for-all. Yeah. And classes are optional, maybe. <laughs> right, right, right. And so I would have it would have really yeah. uh, I don't know. Don't need to live in the past, but it I, I just absolutely love that book. So one more question about kind of the mindset you, you got from Ultimate from playing Ultimate and how it kind of fueled your your writing and the discipline around writing. And when you're teaching your students, how much do you try to teach them about that mindset, the grinding, hard work, need to focus. I mean, obviously, you're teaching them technical writing skills. And one of my best friends is one of your former students, Doug Cutting. Yeah. Um,
1: but how much of how much do you try to teach them mindset, or do you at all? I do. Um, I just taught a class called The Writing Life. Okay. And we do, and we do read the Donald Hall book. Oh, great. Um, Life Work and other books like that. You know, we read Annie Dillard's The Writing Life. We read... Anne Lamott's um, Bird by Bird. And I talk to them a lot about how daily writing and daily commitment and having a regular time uh, is a game changer. Mm -hmm. You basically, you go, I feel like it gives you like superpowers. Yes. Like if you're a writer who writes when it's rainy and you're listening to Neil Young in late October (laughs) and that's when you're inspired... That's great. And you might have a few good sentences. But once you start doing it daily, people are like, well, how do you think of that? Or how do you, you know, I mean, I have every week I have something do, like either a magazine piece or a chapter or, and I don't worry about it during the other hours of the day because I know it's automatic when I get up and stretch my back and have my coffee that the words are going to come. Sure. And I guess if I stopped long enough and maybe you know I'm in Colorado legally smoked pot and worried about it I'd go what wait my whole life depends on making something out of nothing mm-hmm. like how do i know that tomorrow the sentences are going to come well routine and the you know so you're putting something kind of weird and uncertain within something more controllable and disciplined mm-hmm. and then you just kind of you, you get used to it. You habituate, and that's that's what your life's like. And so, I think I try to teach them to do that. And not all of them, you know, a lot of them are writing for the for their workshop pieces. Do and yeah. they're still writing it like it's a high school paper that's due the next day, sort of thing. And I hope they can get beyond that. And I also think it's very curious. Um, creative writing programs have changed quite a bit in the last few years. And I don't think for the better, because there's a boutique element to it where, just like on social media, they kind of know what they want to – they know what they want to read, uh-huh. and they know what, how it is, and they tell you what to teach them. Yep. And it's like, well, if you don't break out of that, into, sure. I don't see how you grow. And, and so that's been a little bit of a struggle recently. Also, nobody talks about ambition, Mm-hmm. They don't talk openly about it. Really? You Why know? do you think that is? Uh, fear, you know, it's not cool to—I mean, not that they're trying to be cool or anything, but it's it's being oh. vulnerable to yes. say, hey, I want to be really good at this thing. Well, then what if you fail at it? Mm-hmm. And so I think I think that workshops could stand to be revamped, and there, there's got to be a, a new paradigm for not the old Iowa, you know, you sit around and— um, and the teacher dispenses this wise conclusion, but everybody's chipping in. Like, I never liked the idea of getting feedback from 14 people. Sure.
0: Uh, I wouldn't like that either. Yeah. <laughs> Not that I'm yeah. in that I world. Mean, like, I'd that's... rather
1: get that editorial letter sure. from, from my yeah, one, from one editor. A few who very
0: wrote. trusted people. Yeah, exactly. Um, Well, you got to get to a bike ride here in a minute. But last time we talked, we kind of ran through some quick questions at the end that I ask everybody. And we won't repeat those, but I do have kind of a variation of those. Okay. When you think about best books you've read this year,
1: do any come to mind? I guess the last two, I've been kind of saving them until school was over because I knew what they might do to my life. (laughs) How to Change Your Mind, which is Michael Pollan's Exploration of Psychedelics. Um, it has not led me to return to my youth and do psychedelics, but it has made me think, you know, he, I, he's a couple of years older than me, but it's made me think that the very things I was just extolling, routine, discipline, also have a downside of what he calls the default mode of being. Mm-hmm. Like I've gotten pretty good at being in the world. Um, I write, I take care of things. I'm the yep. chair of our department. and But with that, you're kind of staying in one part of your brain. Sure. And, uh, you know, one thing Ultimate Glory is about is youthful chaos and entropy. And one thing I liked about the Michael Pollan book was it inspired me to find ways to reintroduce entropy. That doesn't mean I'm going to do LSD every day. It means um, maybe I'll go for a longer hike and, you know, I've been getting more into meditating you know, maybe I'll go back. I remember when I was young, and this is part of ultimate glory. I would talk about the animal mind, kind of getting more, getting away from the kind of frenetic uh, monkey mind of overthinking. Yeah. Now I did that in some non-productive ways too, like drinking, and you know. Uh, but to do that through breathing and meditation, and just when I'm out in nature, really trying to be there and not be tomorrow getting my class lists together and things like that. Sure. So, so that's a book that I thought was very powerful. Um, and now I'm reading, I'm just finishing The Overstory. Oh, okay, yep. Richard Powers, um, really brilliant book. And one of the things it does, which I hope I can do a little bit in the Teddy Roosevelt book, is talk about thinking beyond the self mm-hmm. and beyond the species. You know, we're so you know, everything has to be anthropocentric, everything has to be how humans are affected, even with climate change yeah. and that inability to think beyond into the life of trees, in, in this book in particular but the life of animals and mm-hmm. birds seems to me like, you know, the last great prejudice that needs to be overcome and I think he does a pretty brilliant job of, of showing regular readers that, because yeah. it's an entertaining book too, so he kind of brings them in and then explodes this more green nice. epic on them. Yeah. I'm excited
0: to read that one. You're the second person to tell me I need to read it. Um, you know, there, there are all these authors that are famous, and uh, you know, New York times bestsellers maybe that have, have gotten their, um, their publicity on the main stage, but are there any that you've read over your life and they could be long dead or alive that have kind of underappreciated? Like I felt like in my world, Donald Hall was was that way. I just I wasn't familiar with his work. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he is a big deal, but it was it was new to me. Are there any that you might throw out that that kind of a mainstream audience may not have uh, keyed into yet?
1: Well, I guess here we are in Boulder, so I would say Reg Sauner, yeah, who was my professor here. He wrote brilliantly about uh, and writes brilliantly about. The Southwest, a great book called The Four-Cornered Falcon. And as I travel around the West, I find that uh, people haven't read him Mm -hmm. as much. Uh, I just consider him an essential Western author. So he's one. And I don't think Bernard Devoto was underappreciated in his time because he wrote for Harper's and was pretty well known but I think when we think about the West, uh, Devoto took Powell's basic template and juiced it up. He's another kind of bristling writer. He's kind of Rooseveltian in the sense that everything he talks is with this clipped energy, you know? And he wrote about, he was the first one to really write powerfully about. Cows on public lands. Yeah, yeah he's got yeah. a brilliant essay called "The West Against Itself," which originally was in Harper's, which lays out the whole, you know, issue with public lands. Uh, he, you know, he he said that when these public land rebels, which we think of as new, you know, that uh, they've been doing that for, you know, a hundred years, sure. and that their basic um, program was get out and give us money. Mm-hmm. So you know, the kind of socialist aspect of of public land. So he wrote brilliantly about this stuff and about water in the West and drought and the reality of the West versus the myth of the West. And, you know, Stegner kind of took it from him Uh and learned, I'm not took it from him. Stegner grew up with that that reality, but he, he was Stegner's mentor. So he's somebody who historically, I think, deserves a kind of higher place, especially in the Western hierarchy.
0: I read a book. I got an advanced copy of a book called This Land by Ketchum. Mm-hmm. And he
1: he references him a lot. I was lucky enough to read that book early on. So good. And I, I really loved it. And um, I there's a lot of overlap yes. with the stuff I'm going to be writing about in the Teddy Roosevelt book. But I really liked his energy and his passion and you know the firebrand aspect of it. He didn't and, hold and, back yeah, he did not hold back, and my there's an overlap with what I'm doing, uh, but I would say um, that his is more like kind of fiery journalism and, and really important book, Yeah, I think.
0: Well, thank you for doing this once again. I love it, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time.
1: Thank you. We'll have to have a—we do this on a ping-pong table, by the way. This is our annual ping-pong table interview in Boulder, Colorado.